Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the first 31 verses this morning. I know it's a lot, but I want to get this all in one uh, big chunk. Um, as you're turning there, uh, I got an email from Nancy uh, Lance, and uh, she gave me an update on our shoeboxes that we sent out. You know, we had close to 180, but in, um, in our six-county area, uh, here in Springfield area, we had 18,000 shoeboxes collected. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, praise the Lord. And they're on their way to Gabonese Republic, which is a coastal West Africa town, and the Republic of South Africa. I mean, that's awesome. It's very, very cool. So uh, praise the Lord for that. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 31. The title of my message this morning is Mission Possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning for your word. Thank you for just the, the uh, success of the shoebox ministry, 18,000 of them just from our area. Lord, that's awesome. And we pray again for those boxes that they get right to the right kids that are just desiring those same things that are in that box, Lord, but more than anything that they would hear the gospel and they would come to know you at a young age, Lord, for, through these boxes. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section of scripture that it tells us about the, the men that you chose, Lord, to go out and spread the gospel. We pray, Lord, that as we look at these, these things this morning, Lord, we would have open ears to receive, uh, Lord, how it applies to our lives and how we can apply it to our lives and uh, do the same things, Lord. And we just thank you for this time. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, that they're not born again yet. We pray, Lord, that they would take that step this morning turn from their sin, and turn to you today. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, I'm a pretty big fan of the old Star Trek episodes. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they, on the away missions, they would go in the Star Trek. Oh, if anyone needs a Bible, uh, the guys have Bibles. <laughs> I want them to stand here the whole message and just hold the Bible in their hands. Big fan of the Star Trek. And they would go on these away missions to the planet. And, and you always knew the guy in the red shirt wasn't coming back. Bruce sent me this picture Friday, if you look at that right there. That's uh, uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Ensign Ricky are beaming down to the planet. Guess who's not coming back is what it says there. Always the guy that you didn't know, he wasn't going to come back. And sure enough, they'd get shot by some alien. Well, then I think about... You know, Mission Impossible and those movies. And you know how that would always start. It would start with a, a tape recording. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, sure do you, use, do you choose to accept it? And it would describe the mission. And then at the end it would say, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Well, in the same way, we've been called on an away mission. On a mission. To go in all the world and preach the gospel. I read recently of a new phenomenon called place hacking. Have any of you heard of that? We all know what computer hacking is, breaking into a, a database or hijacking a Facebook account and, you know, to pose as someone else. But place hacking is all about getting into actual places where access may be forbidden or into areas that the rest of the world has simply forgotten about. Now, for those of us with any common sense, you know, call that trespassing, but, but they call it place hacking. Now, 
Place hacking, this is what I read, is a global movement of young urban explorers who sneak into places like former military bases, abandoned factories, decommissioned hospitals, power stations, subway tunnels, and even skyscrapers still under construction. Dr. Bradley Garrett, an Oxford University academic and renowned, renowned place hacker, said this, it's about going into places that are essentially off-limits and, because they are off-limits, have been relatively forgotten. The goal of the urban explorer is not just to explore these places, but also to photograph them and share these with others so they can see what they're like. Place hackers reveal a whole new world that few of us, if any, would see. So, to put all this together, we've been called to go on an away mission. Don't wear a red shirt. Our mission is, if we choose to accept it, is to be a place hacker, hacking into places, people's lives that have been relatively forgotten and share with them the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. And this message will not self-destruct in five seconds. It will, however, self-destruct when Jesus comes back. See, that's why I've titled this message Mission Possible. Because it's God who calls us, it's God who equips us, and it's God who sent us out. And that's what we're looking at this morning. There's a story I read, and maybe you've heard this before, of Jesus returning to heaven. And as he gets there, uh, uh, after dying for the sins of humanity, he's greeted by the angel Gabriel. Awesome thing you did, Lord, Gabriel said. Incredible. Does the world know? Jesus answered, not really. As a matter of fact, only a few guys in Jerusalem understood what I did. Well, how is the rest of the world going to understand? Well, I'm entrusting those guys with the message. I'm trusting they will carry my message throughout the world. But what if they don't, Gabriel asked. What if they decide to go back to fishing? Or what if they get afraid? Or what if they get tangled up in relationships? What happens if they don't do it? What's the plan then? And Jesus replied, I have no other plan. Uh, It's a story. It's just a story. But I think there's some reality to it. The The Lord did entrust the gospel of the kingdom to men and left it with them sending them out to spread the good news that, that men's sins are forgiven because of his death upon the cross. That was his only plan. See, as we come to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has been looking at the physical and the spiritual condition of the world around him. His ministry has been going on to close to a year now, a year and a half, and has continued to face the problems in the world that all of us face. He knows that the only answer can be found in a relationship with him and his God. So he finally comes to the place where he says, you know, these people in this world, man, they're helpless. And they're harassed by the spiritual and the religious leaders of this day. They need some serious help. So he turns to his disciples. And if you look at verse 37 and 38 of chapter 9, Jesus said this. The harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. This is still the same situation some 2,000 years later. People today are hungry for God. Opportunities abound. The harvest is still ripe, both at home and overseas. And the reason for a low yield is not a slim crop, but a lack of laborers. We need pickers. We need those that are, that are going to go hacking places, you know, looking for, for, for uh, people uh, through the eyes of Jesus. Not, not people with compassion, but people who are moved with compassion, as we looked at last time. We need Christians in this church with a heart for the harvest who are willing to get involved. But the place it all begins is where Jesus says, uh, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. 
Because so many people are hurting and they are helpless and spiritually blind and are ready to turn from their old lives and be saved, but there's no one to show them the way. That's why Jesus, first of all, calls us to pray. Because he knows as we pray for those who are lost, as we pray uh, uh, for those who the Lord would raise up and be laborers in his harvest, something happens in our hearts. In the same way as these disciples hear this call to pray, something happened in their hearts. They began to see the same condition that Jesus was seeing around them, and so they began to pray. And then as they began to pray and see the needs around them, Jesus then begins, in fact, to call them and equip them to go and meet those needs. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the call of the mission, the consequences of the mission, and the courage of the mission. First, the call of the mission. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. You see, as the need is revealed, Jesus then calls ordinary people to not only meet uh, those needs, but he gives them supernatural power to do so. In the same way, there'll be a time in your life as an obedient Christian that you'll find that there is a need around you. And immediately the Lord will speak to your heart to pray for that need. But as you do, the Lord will call you to meet that need and give you that supernatural power to do so. But the problem is many times for us, we see that need and, and, and the Lord you know, lays it on our heart. And instead of listening to the leading of the Lord, we say, well, I'm sure there's someone else that can meet that need. And I'm sure they got some family thing that can help there. And we fall short even about praying about it. But in an obedient Christian's heart, when they hear of a need, he or she, get, or she begins to pray immediately about that need and how they might make themselves available to meet that need. All the while recognizing that if God has called them to do it, God will absolutely give them the power and the resources and the ability for them to meet that need in that person's life. I've always enjoyed Warren Wiersbe's book on being a servant, and he writes this, Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. I've watched this firsthand in this fellowship where someone is struggling financially, and, and I know that, and, and out of the blue, someone will, will hand me an envelope, and they'll say, could you give this to so-and-so? The Lord has, has really laid them on my heart to bless them. And they have no clue that this so-and-so has already come to me and told me how struggling they are with their, their finances, and, and, and I'm just the, just the go-between between, between the two. I love when that happens. I, 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 I'm just overjoyed. And if God has never used you in that way, I say pray and ask Him. But also realize that God will give you the resources to help meet that need. And again, it's fascinating to me to see who it is that God uses to meet the needs of others. Because so often it's the last person that you or I would expect. In the same way as we look at the following verses, we know that the apostles were, they were an unusual group of men that God used mightily. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10 now. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. Now, stop there for a moment. Notice in verse 1, when these men are picked, Jesus called them disciples. But when Jesus sends them out, he calls them apostles. Disciples is, is the word learner. That's what it means. Whereas apostle means sent out ones or emissary or ambassador. Now, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, you'll always be a disciple. We're all learners. You, you, but you can be a learner and never become an apostle. You can learn, learn, and learn and never step out and use what, what you've been taught. 
our Lord's desire is that we make disciples of all people. There's a story of a Spanish ship that was adrift at sea. Another ship spotted it and boarded what they thought was a deserted boat. Once on board, a man was found. He was unconscious. He was dehydrated. Over the next several days, his rescuers fed him and nursed him back to health. When he revived, his lips began to move. And they heard him whisper, There's another man. There's another man. See, the saved man's first thoughts were that about the other man who was in the same predicament. And that should be the case with every Christian. There's another man on the same boat. He lives on your street or works in your office. It's not enough for you or I to go to heaven. We need to take someone with us. This is the call of the mission. Disciples that need to become apostles. So these 12 men Jesus calls to be apostles. Now when we think of these great men of God, it's hard for us to think of them you know, as human beings. You know, we call them saints, St. Peter, St. John, St. Andrew, and so forth. And we see them forever, you know, in that stained glass, one-dimensional character that you see in the windows, and they're kind of hard to relate to. But that really is not the way the Bible presents them. When we read of their stories in Scripture, they're, they're very candid stories, very honest. And we read about their faults and their shortcomings and their mistakes and even their sins. And I think the reason for that is so we can see that God can do extraordinary things in ordinary people. Now that's not to say that they were not saints. They certainly were saints. But what is a saint? Is it a person that has been officially recognized by Rome and and canonized? No. A saint, according to the scripture, is a true believer. In fact, I am a saint. Now, you know, you don't have to call me St. Thomas. St. Tom will do just fine. But you're a saint too. We all are. A saint is a true believer. So often we read in the epistles that the the, the letters, they're written to the saints that were in such and such place or the saints that were there. I read a story about a little girl who was asked in her Sunday school class what a saint was. And thinking of the saints in the stained glass window, she said, oh, those are the people that the light shines through. That's exactly what a saint is. It's someone that the light shines shines through. In fact, Jesus did tell us, let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. But these men, though ordinary, uh, God used quite remarkably. They weren't superheroes. You know, Peter didn't wear a cape. You know, uh, James didn't wear a mask. None of them wore spandex, that's for sure. They, (laughs) They weren't superhuman. Very human, just like you and I. And and as God brought them together, He did some amazing things in their lives, just as God has brought us together as a church. He has some amazing things to accomplish that He desires for us as a church. Well, let's take a look at this team that Jesus assembled. First in verse 2 is Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them. I mean, what a crew Jesus has put together. Now, there are three things about the system men that we need to recognize, that we need to take note of. The first thing that we see is that some of them are actually blood brothers. They're related. See, we've, only, we've not only got Peter and Andrew who are brothers, we have James and John who are brothers, but also James and Thaddeus are also brothers. 
And it's fascinating to me to see God work in this way where he'll save two people in the same family. I mean, it's kind of exciting. You know, you get saved, man. What's the first thing? Man, I've got to go tell my brother. I've got to go tell my sister what's going on. Of course, it's God's desire to save everybody in the family. But what a beautiful ingredient you have when you have a sister and a brother. Two brothers that love the Lord and are serving the Lord together. It's interesting to me also that these brothers Jesus called, were, or they are now at this point in their spiritual maturity that they've walked with Christ in such a, a short amount of time but they're ready to go. Yeah, let, let's go. They, they, they're ready to go and co-labor for the Lord. You know, there's something about blood brothers in that you'll always have this bond between the two of you. I see it, you know, with, with my boys, you know, just the way they hang out and stuff. And, and, and the same way we as Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord should reflect that same kind of a bond, that relationship that, that our, our physical uh, family has actually stronger because we're closer to the Lord and the Lord is our Father. I think of a story that my wife told me uh, before I knew her. She's about 10 years old and two boys much bigger than her were, were picking on her two little brothers, probably six and eight years old. They were over across the street at the school and, and so she got over there and she was going to make them stop picking on her brothers. And she did. They stopped and, and uh, I, I don't know if they turned and started beating up on you, or if you just thumped them. But, but I, I think here, here's the point, you know. That bond should be the same way. That union we have in the blood should be the same bond that union that we have in the Spirit. Not that we're going to go out thumping on people, but we're gonna, we have the same love and care for someone that, that you know, we're actually related to. shouldn't be any different now that we are a spiritual family. You're my brother, you're my sister, we're, we're a family in this church. We should get along and, and, and love one another in that way. So this is the group that you have, your actual blood brothers co-laboring together. Number two, what we see in this group of guys is the diversity of backgrounds co-laboring together. Again, if you're taking notes, you might want to underline a few names. First, we have Simon the Canaanite in verse 4, otherwise known as Simon the Zealot. And in verse 3, we have Matthew the tax collector. Why underline these guys? Well, their reputation preceded them. Simon was a zealot. Zealots were a group of people who believed wholeheartedly in the freedom outside of organized government, outside of organized religion. In fact, a man who was a zealot would, for the sake of freedom, do anything, even if it cost him his family or his life. He hated anything that was structured, uh, anything that was governmental, and he would rather go to his grave if it meant somehow finding himself reduced to somehow, you know, conforming to structure. Now, here's what's amazing. Right along this guy, right along who's an epitome of structure, is Matthew, the, the tax collector. I mean, here's a guy who, was, for the most part, worked for the Roman government, a substitution of the Roman Empire itself. Let me tell you, you bring these two guys together in any other situation, they would have been at each other's throats. They would have killed each other before they would have ever gone on a, a missionary journey together. Be like taking the prime minister of Israel and some Ayatollah from Iran and going on a camping trip together with them. Someone wouldn't return. Probably the guy in the red shirt. I, I don't know, but they just don't mesh. Two different mindsets, two different directions. Yet it is only in Christ Jesus that we find we can find ourselves brought together to the point where we lock arms together and we say, "Hey, see that direction, see that goal, that high calling, that place of Christ." I'm on my way there and, and, and I will help you and you help me because we're on our way together in the same direction. So let's go. Let's put aside our differences. 
any differences, any difficulties we might face along the way. Our love for Christ, our love for one another, and our bond and our unity is going to be our staying power. So, we have actual blood brothers co-laboring together, a diversity of backgrounds co-laboring together. Number three, finally, no, uh, they, 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 within this group, not one of them come with any strong theological background or special business affluence. You know, not, not one of them have a bunch of letters after their name. You know, uh, not, nothing out of the ordinary that would, we would say, oh, wow, I see why God used them. I mean, if there are ever clear display in Scripture of God using ordinary men, this is it. And do you know why? Because in Christ Jesus, it can never be said that it's because of your education or because of, uh, that you're a gifted person, because you have some ability. That's the reason that, that God uses you. Now, if that were the case, that God only used the intellectually gifted, it certainly leaves me out. I, I don't know where you guys are at, but it leaves me out. But these are ordinary guys. John Doe's. That's all we are. You know, one of my, my favorite verses to quote, and you've heard me quote it many times, is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes, or powerful, or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So we see God's calling of these men into the mission field. He's sending them out. Look at verse 5. He goes on. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now Jesus is, is calling them out and he gives them a mission. Now this is a, a different mission than the Great Commission. This is a, a smaller mission, a, a previous mission, and that's the, you know, really targeting a single people, a single group, the Jewish nation. The Jewish people living in that area. Jesus has announced to them that the Jewish Messiah has come according to all the the Jewish scriptures to fulfill all the predictions of the kingdom of God as predicted by the prophets. And he says, if you come to them and they want some proof about all of this, then show them proof. Do these miracles that I've enabled you to do to show them the kingdom of God is, is at hand. In other words, here's your priorities. They needed to reach the Jews first. Now Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel is to be preached first to the Jews and then to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. Now, it, it did go forth. It seemed like a huge task, but then I'm reminded of, of how you eat an elephant, you know, one, one bite at a time. Not that we should be eating elephants, but, but the point is this. When it comes to winning the world for Jesus, our, our, our mission can seem almost overwhelming. That is why we need to have in each other, each one of us, a personal vision how God has called you to do what God has, has called you to do to reach the world, to do your part. It's like this. I can't minister to everybody. There's going to be a certain group of people that, that, that I, I minister to well, but there's going to be another group of people that, that I, I can't reach just even because of my age or just because of you know, their hobbies or something you know, that, that, I, that I can't reach. Where, where maybe some of you can reach them. 
You know, maybe you're into to ham radios and you got a ham radio club and, and, and you want to go and, and, you know, you can talk to these guys. I don't know a thing about that stuff and it would bore me to death. But, but you guys, man, you're in the, you can reach a group of people where I can't. And so uh, God might have a certain group of people for you to minister to or perhaps a certain individual. To broaden this a little, maybe God is laying on your heart a, a calling, a direction to go. Maybe it's to visit the shut-ins, like our convalescent ministry today at 2 o'clock. Maybe it's to college kids. The Lord has laid on your heart. And you've got to do what God's called you to do. Someone may feel called to work with children and then to talk to, to Ginger and Lisa and see, see what you can do in the children's ministry. Whatever your ministry is, whatever your mission is, do it if God's called you to do it. Ask Him for direction. He'll show it to you. He'll give you the right, right message to share along with the kind of power and ability to accomplish the work that He's called you to do in your life. And you know what? If you're, obe- if you're obedient to it, you'll be successful in that. Because you know it's the Lord that, that's called you and He's prepared you and He's defined for you uh, the direction you should go with a purpose. I think years ago, uh, Larry Burkett, who's gone on to be with the Lord, he started Crown Financial Ministries. He focused on money. I like Pastor Norman Geisler. I mean, this guy, he's, he's a genius. He, he focused on, on apologetics. Pastor Greg Laurie's focus is on evangelism. Dr. James Dobson, well, he focused on the family. Yeah, I mean, that's what he focused on. <laughs> One thing we all have in common, though, is verse 7, where Jesus says, And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preach. Get the word out. That word for preacher in the Greek is the word caruso. And it reminds me of the late, great opera singer Enrico Caruso. It was said of him, Enrico Caruso, that he could stand 15 feet from the glass and shatter it with his voice. I would love to see that. But I think we should preach like Caruso saying, not screaming in their faces, but clearly, beautifully, forcefully use the gifts that God has given to us to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, then, next the Lord says to his disciples, he says, listen, because you're my apostles and because you're going to be relying on me, I want, you to, I want to teach you what true reliance is. So in verse 8, he says, freely you have received, freely give. Maybe they're standing there going, what? <laughs> we're not going to charge for this? I mean, look what we're doing. I mean, we can make some money off of that. Don't charge? Exactly. I mean, think of it this way. What would it be like if, if a church had a $10 charge to get in? <laughs> a cover charge, you know? Had ticket takers at the door. Hey, welcome, you know, here would be 15 bucks. Then depending on the message and the messenger, the ticket would cost more or less. I'd be paying for you guys to come to the church. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying, that's not what it's about. If you find yourself doing these miraculous things, as verse 8 says, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, casting out demons, don't charge for it. Don't make money off of this. Now, why does he say that? Well, because he knows our hearts. Miracles start happening. And suddenly, you know, we start thinking, you know, I don't have a whole lot of money. And, and here, you've got a daughter that wants his healing. And so here's what we'll do. We'll change the word uh, money to faith and we can get a whole thing going on here. It'll be great. Yeah, let, let's exercise your faith, Christian. Put your faith right here in this bucket to the degree that you show me your, your faith, you'll receive this degree of healing. Okay, money doesn't mean faith. Freely you have received. Freely you give. 
In fact, Jesus takes it a step further in verse 9 when he says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. In other words, don't take anything with you. Lord, not even a suitcase? Man, uh, I like that extra pair of sandals. Uh, uh, you know, I can't decide between the gray robe and the, and the blue robe. Uh, I can't, can I take both? No. Don't take anything. Because if you don't take anything, number one, you're going to be relying on me for your daily uh, provision. And number two, you're going to see me work in your life as these people provide for everything that you need. That's a walk of faith. He's teaching them dependence. Now, it's not always going to stay that way. Over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 35, Jesus said to them there, He said to them, When I sent, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said, Nothing. Then He said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Different kind of mission. He's training them here in, in, in the 10th chapter to live a life of faith and to travel light. In Luke's gospel, he's training them to live a life without him being there physically. Well, Jesus goes on with this call to the mission field, and he says, look at verse 11. He says, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. Verse 12, And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. As surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. So if you're going into this town, you come to a family, if they say, hey, peace, come on in, great, go on in. If they slam the door in your face, well, don't knock the door down. You know, just, you know, just, just walk away from them. And, and, and he says, though, you know, shake the dust off of your feet. Now, now, that practice was actually a rabbinical practice. The rabbis, when they would travel to the Gentile lands and, and re-enter the land of Israel, they would do this. They would, they would shake the dust off of their feet publicly as if to say every particle of dust from this heathen area were leaving off of our bodies because they believed that even the Gentile dust would have defiled them. They're making this statement that there's a separation between non-believers, non-Jewish people at that time, and Jewish people. So the shaking of the, of the dust off your feet was a proclamation of judgment against that place. So Jesus is saying as ambassadors, as, 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 as for the king, these apostles, they're being sent out. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. See, they're representing Jesus the king. And if they don't receive them, it's because they don't receive the message of Jesus the king. And if they don't receive the message of Jesus the king, they're not receiving Jesus. And Jesus said, if they don't receive me, then they don't receive my father. So shake the dust off your feet as a proclamation of judgment, uh, cutting off a disassociation. And this brings us to our second point. Number one, the call of the mission. Number two, the consequences of the mission. Here's the consequence of the mission, which is persecution. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. In the animal world, you know, wolves are natural predators of sheep. I heard one person say, a wolf likes nothing quite like mutton. Get it? A mutton is a, a mature lamb and nothing it rhymes. Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. If you're one of God's sheep, you're going to be despised and attacked for no other reason at all. The, the hatred is inbred. 
There's no winning them over. Their spiritual wolves are like nothing more than just to devour sheep. That's why Jesus says, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Every Christian, we should be harmless, unthreatening, but also not have our heads in the sand. Jesus says, wise as serpents. Now think about snakes. Uh, I can't stand them. And they, they you know, because I don't know that much about them, I just don't like them. But, but, but they seem to have this horrible disadvantage. No arms, no legs, they crawl on their bellies, they're always shedding skin, yet they do a really good job of survival. Man, a snake knows how to hide and stay out of the way of danger. And this is what the Lord is saying. We need to have some, some street smarts, okay? It helps us to be harmless. Hostility only draws more hostility. James 1.20 tells us, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness, righteousness of God. Certainly don't be a coward. But don't, don't come marching in there as if nothing can ever happen to you. And, 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 and you know, you don't care, I don't care what happens to me. I'm going to, you know, you know, be careful, okay? Be smart. Many years ago, there was a man by the name of Branch Rickey. He was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And what made him famous was that uh, he broke baseball's color barrier when he signed Jackie Robinson for the first uh, black major leaguer. Before he signed Jackie, Branch Rickey spent three hours describing him uh, the abuse and the threats and the cursing and the shoutings that he would receive. He's warning them. And then he said this. He said, I want a ball player with guts enough not to fight back you will symbolize a crucial cause. One incident, just one incident, can set it back 20 years. Jackie Robinson promised that there would be no incident, and he played as smart as a serpent, but was as harmless as a dove, and he won this just great victory, great man. Jesus has called you and I to use our heads to fight evil with good, hatred with love. But he says, verse 17, beware. Look at verse 17. But beware, men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. In other words, expect persecution. It's going to come. You're going to get it from the religious authorities. You're going to get it from the, from the governmental authorities. And, and, and here's the reason God allows us to be persecuted. Because opposition produces opportunity. Let me say that again. Opposition produces opportunity. The disciples would be scourged and, and suffer for Jesus' sake, but in the process, they'll have amazing opportunities to share the gospel. Think about the Apostle Paul. Man, he's brought before the Roman procurator Festus, and, and he could have been set free. He could have been let go. But instead, what does he do? He says, I appeal to Caesar. Uh, why? Well, he looked at this as an opportunity to get an all-expense-paid trip to, to the capital of the world, courtesy of the Roman government. Scary proposition, but, a, but a, a marvelous opportunity. We believe that Paul, Paul actually shared with, with Caesar Nero. See, to the disciples, the cause is more important than their comfort. What about us? What are, are we willing to be opposed if it creates opportunities to, to speak for Jesus? Jesus continues, look at verse 19. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, this is not a license for a lazy preacher to not study for a message. The context of this is given in a time of persecution when your life is on the line because of your witness. God at that time will, will gloriously give you the right words to say at the right time, which is a tremendous, tremendous comfort. 
Yeah, we should always be prepared to, to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. But when it's impossible, when, it, when you're put on a moment's notice, the Holy Spirit will, will give us a supernatural recall. He'll be there for us with the right words at the right times. Now look at verse 21. Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. For when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There is this urgency to reach the city of Israel. Why is that? Well, Israel would be ravished. Jerusalem ransacked by the Romans in 70 A.D. Jesus knew of this coming judgment, of this coming persecution, and he warns them about it. He encourages his disciples to make the cities of Israel their, their top priority. They won't have until the end of the age to reach their own villages, only a few short years. Again, that's why Jesus said in verse 5 to go, not go to the Gentiles in this mission, but only the Jews. Now, eventually, they will go into the whole world. They will fulfill their mission. In fact, uh, tradition tells us exactly what happened to the 12 disciples. Only one, the Apostle John, died of natural causes. And that was only after Emperor uh, Domitian tried to boil him in boiling oil. God miraculously didn't let him fry. And so he tried to make him a French fry. It didn't work. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Rome. James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified in, in Greece on a cross in the shape of an X. Philip was hanged in Asia Minor. Bartholomew or Nathaniel was skinned alive and beheaded in Armenia. Matthew was slain with a sword in Ethiopia. Thomas was impelled with a lance while he was preaching in India. The other, James, was thrown off from the Jewish temple and stoned to death. Thaddeus was shot with arrows in Mesopotamia. And Simon the Zealot was attacked by a mob near the Persian Gulf. Yeah, they, they, they hit Jerusalem first, but they were willing to go out and, and experience horrible persecution all because of their love for Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our third and final point, the courage for the mission. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Listen, Christian, I don't know what you expect in your Christian faith, but there are two things that I've come to expect. Number one, everyone I preach to will not listen to me. (laughs) And number two, the godly life that I'm living, I cannot expect the ungodly world to live that way. And Jesus says it clearly when he says, you know, here's the problem. You know, they're going to come against you just like they came against me. In fact, they called me Beelzebub. They might want Beelzebub. Isn't that from a song? Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me. I, I don't know. That's where we hear it from, you know. But what, what does Beelzebub mean? What, what is the word? Well, in Hebrew, it means the Lord of the dung. Or, or in Hebrew, if you transliterate one little last letter, that could also be the Lord of the Flies. And some uh, manuscripts, you see that little slash over the Hebrew letter, and in others it's not there. So it could either be Lord of the Dung or Lord of the Flies. Either way, I wouldn't want to be called either one. But the amazing thing about this in the Greek, it literally means Lord of the House. So Jesus has got here a play on words. He says, you know, I'm the Lord of the House, but you know what they're calling me? They're calling me the Lord of the Flies or, or Dung. And he says, you can expect the same thing. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. 
how much more will they call those of his household? You know, isn't it great? He's saying, man, we're all in the same house. We're all in the same home. We're all family. If the master is ridiculed, if the master is persecuted, then listen, Christian, you can expect it as well. See, I don't expect the ungodly world to live like I live. I don't expect them to talk like I talk or do the things I do. I expect them to, to come back with, with quip, you know, quippy little sayings and nasty little remarks. We, we've experienced over the years. And I think if we truly understand this, we can live a whole lot happier because we don't expect them to live like us. Oh, I can't believe they said that. Why can't you? They don't know the Lord. <laughs> they're not Christians. And I just realize that there's some people who will listen to my words and other people that won't who have uh, just got to shake the dust off my feet and, and say, well, listen, you know, if you want to go to hell, then, then I can't help you. I can't believe it. The pastor said, go to hell. Uh, no. <laughs> but, but, but what can you say? If a person rejects Jesus Christ and says, I don't want to have anything to do with him, all I can do is pray for that person. That's it. I'm limited in my power. God, however, is not. And there are many times in my ministry, I'll address a problem in someone's life, but it doesn't mean that just because uh, I'm a pastor, it doesn't mean that they're going to change. I really thought at one time, the more I knew of the Bible, uh, if I knew more of it, then people would just automatically get saved, you know, right away. But, but it doesn't matter. You can have a whole great knowledge of Scripture that can't save anybody because it's only God who works sovereignly in the lives of those you pray for. It helps to have the knowledge of Scripture. It helps to have God's Word. We need God's Word. I think, you know, we all know of those that need prayer, of those that non-believers are, are, are satisfied where they're at, that they, they've chosen not to put their faith and trust in, in Christ. And I think after we've shared the gospel with them, there's nothing we can do for them except pray. Pray that their hearts would finally be open and they would come to a place and see their sin and see their need for a Savior. So, as you're witnessing, in the face of persecution and rejection, the Lord says, have courage. Look at verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Listen, don't be afraid. If they start calling your names, making false accusations against you, and insulting you, slandering your name, this is, don't, don't start complaining. Don't say, oh, it's unfair, it's not fair. Of course it's unfair. All persecution is unfair. The cross of Jesus was certainly unfair. But in the end, all of that's hidden will be known. It will be made clear. Your, your reputation will be vindicated. Evil will be exposed. Truth will be told. In the meantime, be patient and courageous. He says, verse 27, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. In other words, we've been hanging out by the campfires at night. You know, I've been sharing you and sharing with you. Now preach it on the housetops. Get the message out. He says, and don't worry what men can do to you. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God, not man, he says. It's been said, the man who fears God has no other fears. The man who refuses to fear God is frightened by everything. Finally, verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Think about that truth. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and the Lord knows all about it. He knows all about the birds in the air. He knows about the bird that hit your window, you know, last week and died in the backyard. You know, he saw it. He knew about it. 
Nothing escapes his eyes. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. God counts the hairs of your head. For some of us, it's an easier uh, task than for others. He, he knows every head. Did you know that the average human head has about 100,000 hair follicles and that each hair follicle can grow about 20 individual hairs in a person's lifetime and the average hair loss is around 100 strands per day? Some of us, it's exceedingly more than that, but God even knows that. That's just how intimately He knows us. David writes this in Psalm 139, 17 and 18, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They are innumerable. I can't even count them. They are outnumber the grains of sand. Man, if you ever take a trip to the coast, either east or west coast, and you grab a handful of sand at the beach, try counting it. One, two, I mean, you'll give up rather quickly. Because you realize that, that God's thoughts for you are, are more than the grains of sand, then you realize that you know, He thinks about you an awful lot. Every aspect of your life is monitored and is, is controlled by our sovereign God. You're His child. Never lets you go. God never says, oops, <laughs> sorry about that one. It's not in His vocabulary. See, when you suddenly realize how much He thinks about you and you recognize your calling to the mission field, you go, man, I can do this. I can do this. By mission field, I mean even in your own backyard or place hacking. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. When you realize just how much the Lord uh, thinks about you, you can rest in His love and in His leading and you can go for it, even in a red shirt. Yeah, there are consequences on the mission field, but you can go forth in courage knowing that the Lord is with us. I love Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Verse 39, we'll get to it next week. Jesus says this. He says, He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a beauty in that. An absolute beauty in being completely sold out for Jesus Christ. I think so many of us want to see God move in miraculous ways in our life, but we have too many things, too many strings attached with the world. Jesus says, hey, if you're willing to lose, uh, those who are willing to lose their life for my sake will be those of a fine life because they truly abandon themselves to God. So as we close, where are you at this morning? If you're saved, God has called you on a mission. Yeah, there's consequences on the mission. You may be persecuted, but you know the one who has called you and he'll give you the courage to see you through, to reach those with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit because apart from that, we could do nothing. And so, Lord, we pray that as you send us out of these doors today, Lord, that we would uh, realize we're on a mission, that we have some place hacking to do, Lord, that we have some people you want us to talk to, to share with, to love on, to help meet their needs. Whatever it is, Lord, we want to be open. We want to do, Lord, that which you've called us to do. To be that, that servant, Lord, and, and to, to uh, bring in fruit, Lord, by doing what you've called us to do, to be those laborers in your field. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your Spirit to work in our lives. Lord, I pray for uh, those that may be searching for direction, for for ministry, Lord, that you would just reveal to them where you've called them, where you've placed them. 
that they might serve you in a greater capacity, Lord. Whatever focus it is for them, focus on evangelism or focus on the family, whatever it is, Lord, direct them, I pray. Thank you, Lord, again for this time. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all